And I've been taking the time to just go through it phrase upon phrase and meditate upon it. And, um, and as I do, I'm just seeing some deeper things, and I really felt led to share some of these things with you as we kind of go through it together. We're going to spend this time meditating uh, in the first chapter of Ephesians. So let's, let's, we pray, let's go ahead and read down through it, and then we'll go back and pick up kind of where we left off two weeks ago. Pastor Michael ministered last Wednesday night. Verse 1, Ephesians 1.1. 1, 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. And now he begins to list some of those. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as, as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us, the New King James says, accepted in the beloved, some other translation says, by which he uh, freely bestowed upon us in the beloved. Verse 7, in him we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of time, he might gather to him, together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in earth, in him." In him we also have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Therefore, because of all this, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, might give to you a spirit of wisdom, the spirit of wisdom, and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you might know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him his right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come." and put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Whew. Mouthful. All right, let's go back and quickly what we've talked about so far. We've gone down and we've looked at, at verse 3. We started really in verse 3, that he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. And then we talked about like verse, uh, verse 9, verse 4, down through verse 14, one of the things it talks about, if you read through quickly, that you don't really see, is that a lot of this is talking about God's nature, his heart, his intention. That God didn't just do these things because he was obligated. God, because God's not obligated to anybody. He's God. 
But we see that he did this, what he did for us, we see in verse 5 that he, that he adopted us, that he, uh, before the foundation of the world, he determined that we would be holy and without blame before him in love. And he did this, verse 5 says, according to the good pleasure of his will. This is to satisfy the desire of his heart. And this gives, according to the praise of his glory, the praise of his glory, verse 6 says, of his grace. So this is proving something about God. It's proving his grace. It's proving the, the, the extent of his grace, how far his grace would go. And we've talked about the fact that you and I are never going to be presented as trophies of how faithful we are. We are trophies of God's grace. And we talked about several weeks ago that there's going to come a great time when this age comes to an end when God is going to use you and me as examples of not his how powerful he is, as examples not of how wise he is, but examples of how merciful he is and how gracious he is. And it goes on in chapter 2 when we looked at that before. He's going to display you and me as, t- as witnesses, as evidence of how gracious he is and what his grace and love will do to the angels, both the demons in hell and the, the, the spirits of angels in heaven, as what because they don't understand grace. The angels don't understand grace, and certainly the demons understand grace. And so God is going to use you and me, not how faithful we were, not how good we were, but how good God's grace was. And chapter 1 is an insight into the evidence of God's grace. He did this to satisfy the good pleasure of his will. You're here tonight as a satisfaction of the good pleasure of his will. This was his idea. You are his idea. Whether you were your parents' idea or not, you were his idea. Whether you were a disappointment to your parents or not, you're not a disappointment to God. You're a trophy of his grace. His love for you, his patience with you and with me, is an example, a proof, an evidence of his goodwill, of his good intention, of what he's like. So this is why we've got to learn to get our eyes off of ourselves. How am I doing? No, how is God doing? Not how am I doing. The devil wants you to constantly evaluate, how am I doing? Well, I'll tell you how you're doing. You're always falling short. So let's just admit it. This is, this, is a, this is a group therapy session here tonight. Let's just get it all out in the open. All of us are falling short. Amen. We fell short of his glory. We're going to continue to fall short of his glory. And left on our own, we'll all get in trouble. So good, we got that out. I feel much better, don't you? All right. And you can even tell other people. All right. But and God knows it. God's not sitting in heaven going, oh my gosh, did you hear what they said at Faith Christian Center? What am I going to do? I was counting on them. No, he's not counting on us. <coughs> Wonderful testimonies in the Old Testament, even in the New, where people, God gave their assignment. Almost always when God gives an assignment to somebody, their first reaction is, who, me? <laughs> you must have chosen somebody else. Don't you know me? And when Moses did that, God gave the answer he gives to everybody. I'll be with you, but I'll be with you, but I'll be with you. And we're going to see, not this Sunday, but next, we'll see that when we get finished with Matthew 28 on Sunday, and we talk about Jesus said, this is what your commission is. In the end, he says, and lo, I'll be with you always, always, always. And so God's not counting on you. He's counting on himself in you, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul says, Paul said, I finally learned the secret. I glory in my weakness. 
2 Corinthians chapter 11. I, 12. I glory in my weakness so that my weakness is made perfect. God's strength is made perfect in my weakness. Gideon. Gideon was hiding in a wine press when the angel of the Lord found him and calls him mighty man of valor. And this is a very loose translation, but Gideon says, who, me? Who are you talking to? See, God calls things that be not <laughs> as though they were. All right. So we looked at that. I don't want to go back in that. That's so rich. And then we talked about, uh, uh, we got into verse 7 and 8 and 9, having redemption in his blood. We talked about in those verses, it's in, in uh, 11 verses, I think it's seven or eight times, it says in him, in Christ, through Christ. We talked about the fact that all we are, the righteousness that we have, the right standing that we have before God, the, the God's openness to our prayers, the, the, the love that we have for us, is all because we're in Christ. That means who he is, you are, because you're in him. So if he's righteous, we're righteous, not because we're righteous on our own, we're righteous because we're in someone who's righteous. If, if we're loved, it's because we're in someone that's loved. We've been joined to him. So whatever he is, we are. Whatever he is, we are. So everything we have is because we're in Christ. If you abide in me, and my words abide on you, John 15 says, you shall ask what you want and shall be done for you by my Father that's in heaven. If you abide in me, I will bear fruit through you. We talked about all of that. So we need to rest in him instead of going out trying to do this on our own. It doesn't give glory to him, and we can't do it. Because he said in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. Okay. Now what we're going to go down into, we began to talk about this uh, two weeks ago. We're going to pick up in verse 11. In him, there it is again, also we have obtained an inheritance. We began to talk about that. Being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That just means this inheritance is God's idea according to the counsel of his will. Verse 12 says that we who first trusted in Christ, that's talking about Paul and the early apostles, should be to the praise of his glory. There it is again. That we should be the praise of his glory that we have an inheritance, and it's a, to the praise of his glory. Now, as I was studying this out today, you're gonna, we're going to look in verse 11, we're going to look in verse 14, and we're going to look in verse 18. We'll read some of the ones in between, but all three of those verses talk about an inheritance. In verse 11, some translations read it a little differently. It says, because in some of the, some of the, in some of the versions of the Greek Bible, it says not only in him, not in him do we have an inheritance, but it says we are his inheritance. And the Greek, if you look at the Greek, it's not clear. So most of the translations read this, in him we have an inheritance. Some translations say, in him we are his inheritance. I figure either way it's pretty good. In fact, I suspect it's both. That we have an inheritance in him, and God looks at us as an inheritance that he has. Well, that's, that's kind of strange that we could be God's inheritance. No, not at all. If you look over in Deuteronomy and you look at the end of the book of Exodus, God talks about Israel as his inheritance. Wow. They were different than any other people on the face of the earth. God not only chose them, he made them. 
Because he didn't pick a nation and said, that's going to be my nation. He picked a man, Abram. And he said, I'm going to form my nation, my people, through you. I've chosen you. He brought him out of a pagan society, put him in a land that God gave to him, and said, I'm going to make a supernatural nation out of you, and it's going to start out supernatural because I picked a man and a woman who are barren. They can't produce a child. And I'm going to promise them that through my promise, I'm going to make this you the father of many nations when it's impossible for you to even do one child on your own. Because God says, I want to get all the credit. I want this to be a nation I formed, I birthed. And no man can look and say, look what I've done. Because I'm going to pick a man that's impotent and a woman that's barren. Oh, that'll preach. So God didn't choose you because of your strengths. God didn't choose you because of your talent. God didn't choose you because of your ability, your insight, your understanding, or anything about you except your weakness. Because God wants to take your nothing and make it something. 1 Corinthians 1 says that. God chose the weak things of the world. To put to shame the great, God shows the things that are not. How many are nots do we have here? God shows the thing. We had a, we had a youth pastor once called our not. So how, we're all our nots. <laughs> Why? Because God wants to create it himself. He just needs our cooperation. He, he needed Abraham to believe. And that's all he needs for you and me. You'll find this in Galatians 4. He talks about this, the covenant. He just wants us to believe him. That's all he ever wants us to do. Trust him. Trust him. And there's no limit to what God can do in your weaknesses. There's no limit to what God can do what you can't do anything about. That includes your children. That includes your past. It includes your future. This isn't in my notes. This is good. God specializes. He loves the impossible. Because when we get into the impossible, there's no one else we can trust but God. I know I can't do this. Now God can do something. As long as we think we can do part of it, he's got to sit back and fold his arms and say, okay, hotshot, let's see what you can do. And we all have testimonies of what we can do on our own. That's why we're here tonight. All right. So God took Israel... And because he finally got this man and woman to believe him, and it took him about 25 years, God was able to give them a son supernaturally. And then through that son, he gave gave that son, uh, another son, 12 sons. And then eventually God formed this nation. He took down into Egypt about 70 of them, and when he came back, they were as numerous as the sand 400 years later. God brought them out of bondage and brought them supernaturally into a land that he promised to them. And God drove out the inhabitants that were there. See, that doesn't sound fair. When God does something, it is fair. Who are we to decide whether God's fair or not? Because after all, I'm not sure I want God to be fair. Because if God's fair, he's got to be fair in what he does with me. And I'm here by his grace, not because he was fair and just with me. I don't want justice. I want mercy. And so 
So he, so when he, but he refers to Israel as his. They belong to him. And he gave them a series of rules with things they could do and couldn't do, things they could eat and they couldn't eat, where any other nation could eat whatever they want, but Israel couldn't eat everything everybody other nation wanted. And part of what God was doing was showing them that they were holy, that they belonged to him, that they were a peculiar, a different people, because he's holy. And so it's not, un- it's not unprecedented that God would take a people and say, you're my inheritance. In Deuteronomy, he calls them his inheritance. In a number of places, he calls them his inheritance. They're his. They're what he gets. Wow, can you imagine? God sees us as his inheritance. This is what he gets out of the deal. Wow. Well, we know we didn't fool him because you can't fool God. All right. But we're going to look at it from the perspective that we have an inheritance. We're going to look at this. So in verse 11, in him also we have obtained. Notice it doesn't say you will. We have obtained an inheritance. Let's talk about what an inheritance is. Just, you know, I love to do this. I love to take a simple idea and take it outside of church where we all understand what we're talking about. It's when you bring it into church where we begin to get theological and doctrinal and we get squirrely about it. But let's, but let's just talk in real language. What is an inheritance? If you got a letter tomorrow and say, you know, this uncle, this uncle that you didn't know, but you're the only relative they have, and you've obtained an inheritance, would you just take it and throw it in the trash can? No, we'd want to know. We, we have some questions, don't we? I mean, I might be curious on who this relative is, but I really don't care a whole lot. I mean, let's get real now. I want to know, what do I get? Right? That's, I mean, let's just not be so spiritual. We might say, oh, Lord, I want to know my uncle. I want to know what, you know. No, no. Okay, that's good. I want to know, what do they have? And how much of it am I getting? And then I'm already planning what I'm going to do with it. I'm obviously going to tithe on it, right? Yeah, we're going to tithe on it. But then what am I going to do? Just begin to plan, and we don't have anything yet. So what is an inheritance? Well, it's something that's transferred. It could be money. It could be a dog. I mean, it could be, it's something that you receive that you didn't earn, that someone else earned. And you receive it by virtue of someone dying. So when someone dies, what they owned is now transferred to you. And it's given to you freely. Oh, there's a tax that the estate pays, but what you get left over is free to you. You don't pay an income tax on it. It's free to you. And so that's what an inheritance is. So now let's bring this over to verse 11. So we've obtained an inheritance. So it's something. Something of value that we didn't earn. Something of value that someone else made or earned and that it it is ours by virtue of someone dying. So the same elements that are in in an inheritance in this earth are also in this inheritance. And so we know whatever we're getting, we didn't earn. We didn't make, it is freely given. Now, it's interesting, if you got that letter and they said that on June 5th or whatever, you were to show up in this law office, 
because there was going to be a reading of the will, which they don't do anymore, but there's going to be a reading of the will, and the property was going to be, you would be told what it is that you've inherited. You'd show up then. Right? Now, come on. You would show up then, right? Yeah. Wait, I want to know what this is. Okay? And you'd show up anticipating and excited. Because I've got an, I don't know what it is. It may be 30 bucks, but it's 30 bucks I didn't have before. As long as it's more than the parking fee for the garage downstairs, I'm ahead. <laughs> but we would go, our mind would begin to imagine, I wonder what it could be. Wow. I mean, you might want to look into who this uncle was and figure out what they had, you know. What is it? I had that happen once. I had a relative die. And I started a meeting trying to figure out what they had. I was disappointed when I found out what was left over. Because <laughs> it was more debts than it was assets. But my mind began to run in that way. It doesn't take long either. Now let's bring that over to God. In Him you have an inheritance. In Him, you, I, I, you know, we'll look at what it is. But whatever it is, it's got to be good. Because it's God's. It's God's. God doesn't have anything bad. He doesn't have anything cheap. He doesn't have anything poor. He doesn't have anything with moth holes in it. I mean, his streets are paved with gold. So anything from there up is better than gold. So when gold is his cheap building material, wow. Now, I'm not telling you that what our inheritance is, is things. Because in this earth, we get so focused on Things, bling as some people call it, you know, the jewels and the watches and the cars and all that stuff. There's stuff, there's, there's things in God's kingdom that are of infinitely greater value. Actually, there are things here of infinitely greater value. Your health is of infinitely greater value. Just lose it and you'll find out. I've recently been at the bedside of somebody who's approaching death. And you know what? All the stuff doesn't matter anymore. They're not following the Red Sox or the Yankees anymore. They're not concerned with, you know, wh you know what their income's going to be next year. They're facing the realities of life. And things are not the reality of life. We mentioned last time that there's one thing I know, I don't, I don't know how much you, any of you have, how much of you own, but I guarantee some, one thing. I know one thing about all of your estates. I know what you're going to leave. All of it. It's all staying here. None of it's going up with you. And you know what? When you get there, you won't care. You won't say, you know, I wish I, I, wish I had that car up here. I wish I had those clothes. Oh, oh, that necklace. I wish I had it up here. You will never think about that up there. Your body is going to be so much more gorgeous, so much more amazing than anything you could bring. So whatever it is, it's out of this world, literally. It's an inheritance. And see, the point here is we need to walk around understanding we have an inheritance. I shared with you last time the story of John D. Rockefeller's children. John D. Rockefeller's mother was a devout Christian. She trained young John to tithe on everything he got. His allowance, if he found a coin in the street, he had to tithe on it. 
And she was very strict, and he grew up very strict. But he trained his children, although he was, at that time, perhaps the richest man in the world, and he, there were other things he was off about, but he trained his children the value of money and the value of working. That was a place for an amen for some people. But, <clears throat> okay, the lost, the lost art of training your children for that. But I told you the story, as I understand it, that he made each of his children work in one of his companies under an assumed name. And the only person in that company that knew who that child was was the manager. And he was not allowed to reveal it because he wanted his children to grow up the way he grew up at the bottom. But they didn't grow up the way he grew up. I don't care whether young Nelson was pushing a broom in the men's lavatory. He still had in the back of his mind, I ain't doing this forever. He knew that he had a destiny. He knew that he had something awaiting him that was more than pushing a broom in the, in the, men's, in the men's restroom. He knew that even if he did this the rest, for the next 20 years, somewhere in down the line, he's got an inheritance, and that inheritance includes the restroom that he's sweeping out. It includes the plant. It includes the, everything that's in there. He knows instinctively that whatever he's doing right now, that doesn't tell him who he is. That whatever he has right now, that doesn't tell him what he's going to have. And that's what this means to us. Because your father's not John D. Rockefeller. Your father's not the owner of the plant. Your father is the owner of the kingdom. He's the creator of the kingdom. Of the universe. And we have an inheritance. And the reason Paul is telling them that is because to keep our eyes on what's important. To give us a hope. To know we have a future. Regardless of what happens to you in this life. Regardless whether you ever reach a success in the world's eyes or not, or even in the church's eyes or not, whether you get healed or not, does God want you healed? Yes. But whether you get healed or not does not change your inheritance. And Paul learned to live his life. And those early Christians learned to live their life with their eyes of faith, not on what was here, but their eyes on their inheritance that they had. Because it's that inheritance, there's the confidence in that inheritance that got them through the difficult times, that got them through the times when they had nothing. Which is why Paul could write in Philippians chapter 4, he says, I'm content whether I have lot or whether I have little. Whether I abase or I abound, whether I have nothing or whether I'm sitting in a palace, it doesn't change who I am. It doesn't change how I feel about myself. It doesn't change how I feel about God. It doesn't change. That's why you could sit in a prison in Philippi at midnight and sing songs and praises to his God because his eyes weren't on the prison walls with the water dripping down and the rats running around. His eyes were not on his circumstances. His eyes were on his future and he had a future and a hope. And God says we have a future and a hope. We have an inheritance. An inheritance from God. Your Father who delights to give you His kingdom. Delights to give you a kingdom. This is according to the good pleasure of His will. Alright, that would be interesting to look at. Okay. In Him we have obtained. Not we will someday. It's ours now. being predestined according to the good purpose, verse 11, purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That we, now Paul's going to talk about 
the early, the, the, the first apostles, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Now he's going to talk about us. In him you also trusted. After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. He is the mark upon you in the spirit realm that marks you as belonging to God, as God's inheritance. The brand, we talked about that last time. It's as if it's a cattle brand on you, except we're not cattle, we're sheep. We're branded in the spirit realm. If you could see into the spirit realm, you could instantly tell a Christian from someone who's not by the presence of the Spirit of God in them. He is the guarantee. Who is the guarantee, verse 14, of our inheritance, the guarantee of it. So God's not just asking you to just trust blindly that you have an inheritance. God's given you, and we talked last time about what an earnest payment is. The word is Arabon, which literally means a, 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 an earnest payment. It can mean an engagement ring. It's, it's, it's a deposit. It's a taste. It's a, it's a portion of what the inheritance is, but it's only a portion of it, and it's something that's given to you now, so you have confidence the rest of it's there, and it's coming, and it belongs to you. Just like the down payment on a house or the down payment on a car that you pay, it is, it is earnest money, and the Spirit of God in you is God's tangible evidence to you that this inheritance is real. All right, we're going to go on now and look at more of what this is. Verse 15. Well, let's go back in verse 14. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession? Ephesians connects together words that are so pregnant with spiritual meaning that it's so easy to read over them and not get them. So we're going to take the time to, to get them. Until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. There's a progression in our salvation of what God gives us. And there's three words. We don't have the use of all the screens, so I was going to put them up there. But I'll go over them slowly. The first word is justification. Justification. Justification is... The, is when God made you legally right in his sight. We read over here early on in verse uh, 4 that he chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Well, I suspect, I don't know everything about your life, but to be holy and without blame means there's no blemish at all. And I suspect, although I don't know everything about your life, I sure know my life, that I'm not completely without blemish. I'm talking about since I got saved. And I strongly suspect neither are any of you. We have sinned at some point. We have failed at some point. We already admitted we've all fallen short at some point. So if you look at our lives, we're not exactly pure and holy and without blame. So how can God call? And yet on the other hand, we can't stand in his presence unless we're pure and holy and without blame. So how can we say we're pure and holy and without blame when we know we still have done things wrong and confessed them and been forgiven, we still have done things wrong since we've been saved? 
because there's a legal position. When we went through renewing the mind, we talked about the difference between the legal side of something with God and the vital or the living or experienced side of it. The legal side is where we legally stand with God. And when you came to Christ, the Bible says in, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. And if you look at that verse carefully, what it's, what it's not saying, it's not saying that when you came to Christ that God scrubbed you up and made you perfectly clean so that you had no unrighteousness in you. Because even if he did that, the moment you get up the next day, somewhere we're going to mess up again and we're going to get in trouble and there's going to be some unrighteousness. So God got to the root of the problem. In the Old Testament, he couldn't get to the root of the problem because the blood of bulls and goats that were offered up couldn't solve the problem on the inside. It couldn't change the nature. So all it could do is atone for or cover over the sin so that God could, in, to a limited degree, have contact with them. But he couldn't make them the sons and daughters. He couldn't get into a, a, a family relationship with them. It was a distant relationship seen through the veil of the, of the tabernacle. But in Christ, Hebrews tells us, but Christ's blood is much better because it's sinless blood. He was the sinless, blemish, sinless lamb. And because he was the sinless lamb, because he was out sin and he was sacrificed, his blood can pay for our sins once and for all because it deals with the root of the problem. It deals with sin itself. He who knew no sin was sinless, was blameless, became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the most amazing statement in the Bible. Not that we might become righteous. It's the righteousness of God. God's own righteousness was given to us in Christ because we're in him. We could, he could legally give us his righteousness by bringing us into him. That's your legal position before God when you come to Christ. And that's what justification means. It's just as if I'd never sinned even though you have. That's our legal position. But then the Spirit of God comes in us and begins a process called sanctification. And sanctification is the work of the Spirit of God on the inside of us to begin to change us so that we begin to act like who God's made us to be legally. That's sanctification. And that's a lifelong work of the Spirit of God. So if you look at yourself today, you should be further along in this sanctification than you were when you first got saved or there's an issue. And this is a work of the grace that the Holy Spirit does in us. Now, he needs our cooperation. So when he prompts you to do something, you need to do what he prompted you to do, like when you've just gotten mad at somebody and all of a sudden your heart begins to convict you and you know you need to go make that right. That's the Spirit of God working in you, that sanctification. Because before you were saved, you just get your nose bent out of joint anyway and say, for them. <laughs> they deserve it. They got what they deserve. But you see... In the kingdom of God, we don't get what we deserve. 
And so, so God's transforming us. If you read through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says some very challenging things. He says to love your enemy. He says in the, in, the, in the Old Testament, it says, you know, love those who, you know, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. What somebody does to you, do back for them. He says out in the world, they, they love their friends, the people that do good to them, but they hate their enemies. He says, but you need to be something higher than that. You need to love your enemies. You need to pray for those who despitefully use you. And then he goes on to say, why? So that you may be like your friends. Father who is in heaven. So what Jesus is doing is he's changing the standard. He's, he's announcing the family standard. This is how our family operates. Because this is how Father operates. This is what he's like. This is what he was like with you. This is what he's like with all everybody else. And so this is what our goal is. So we grow to be like our Father. And it's the Spirit of God in us working in every day through the circumstances of life and the things that he prompts you to do or not do, and we correct you when you do something you shouldn't do. That's why we need to be sensitive to that conscience inside of us. God said in the new covenant, I'll write my law not on stone, but in your heart. So your heart tells you when you're right or wrong, which is why we have to be sensitive to it and not sear it over by being, by being uh, calloused to it when it prompts us to say, you know, I felt the, Lord, the Holy Spirit prompt me to do something that really wasn't all that significant and would have been a big deal if I didn't. Probably not, except I would have violated my conscience. And what's at stake there isn't whether I'm right or wrong. It's staying sensitive to the conscience, the Spirit of God who is at work in me, regardless of whether it looks like it means something significant or not. Now, you know, you don't walk around all the time looking on the inside. You know, I wonder what he's saying. I wonder what he's saying. Because then you're going to walk, you know, if you keep looking inside of you, you're going to walk into something and get hurt. But you know, when, you, you know when, when there's a prompting in there. And the more you listen, the more sensitive you are. The more you override it, the more insensitive you get. And we cannot afford to be insensitive to our guide that God has put inside of us, the one to lead us into all truth. And now the third concept, so the first is justification. That's something God does when by faith you come to Christ. Sanctification is something God does in you but needs your cooperation. And it's an ongoing work to bring your life, your thought life, your act outside life, your speaking life, all of that in conformity to God and who he is in you. Because we're going to see, I don't know that we're going to do this, but if you read on in Ephesians, after he goes through the first three chapters, he starts chapter four by saying, therefore, because of who God, all the first three chapters is what God's done for you. And now chapter four begins, therefore, because this is what God's done in you, this is how we ought to act. And that's what sanctification is. But there's a third term, which is glorification. There's justification, which what happens in an instant when you're born again. Sanctification is a process of the Spirit of God working in your life to bring your, your outward life into conformity to what God put on the inside of you. But that doesn't change your body. When Christ was raised from the dead, one of the things he did is he displayed that there had been a change to his body. There was, a, there was a sample that he gave them at one point when he took Peter, James, and John up on a mountain. And he goes off, and all of a sudden, there appears to him other, two other figures, Moses and Elijah. And Jesus is talking to them. And when he does, his garments begin to glow. 
like the whiteness of the sun, of the sun on snow, white snow, and his face began to glow. What this was was the inner glory beginning to shine outside through his clothes and through his face and through his hair, and they just got a taste of this. Moses had a taste of it when he was on the mountain because he was in the actual presence of God, and that absolute light that shines out of God is, is more powerful than, than atomic power. And it, 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 it permeated his clothes and his face so that when he came down off the mountain, it says in, in, in Hebrews chapter 3, uh, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, that the people couldn't stand because of the glory that shone from his face. So he had to cover his face with a veil. But then eventually when he was away from the source of it, it began to, 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 to wane and to, to, to dry up. And then it came to the point where it says in, in Second Corinthians, that Moses kept the veil over so they wouldn't see that it was beginning to fade away. But the point is that, that just by being in the presence of that absolute life and power and light, it got in his clothes. Well, in Jesus' case, it came out of him. It came out of him. But when he was raised from the dead, this exploded out of him and didn't just change the clothes, it changed his physical flesh. So that it was no longer mortal, it was immortal. And it says in, in, in Romans 15, 1 Corinthians 15, that this mortal must put on immortal. We're going to look at it a little later on. Why? Because in order to get into heaven, you can't get in there with one of these bodies. Because this is immortal. It's limited. It's fleshly. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 16, 17 that this outward man is perishing. What he means is get older. Have you noticed? It's getting older. It doesn't look the way it looks. I looked at a picture of my office, and I have a picture of Pastor Sam about 15 years ago, and my hair's a different color. And there was more of it. It looked good because I'm standing next, sitting next to him, and he didn't have any. But I don't, you know, and, and, and you know, old Mary Ann Brown used to say, everything that used to be north goes south, you know. <laughs> It just sort of gravity begins to take hold, and you know, well, we won't go there much further. But that's because it's a mortal body, and it's going to die at some point. But the Bible goes on to say we have a hope because there's an immortal body, because Christ came in part during those 40 days to demonstrate this other body we're going to get. And that's part of this inheritance. That's what he's talking about here. He says, the guarantee of our inheritance. So we have the guarantee. We have the deposit until the full payment comes. Part of that full payment is we change bodies until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. This is the final work of the Holy Spirit, and it's the completion of our salvation. If you'll notice in Paul's writing, in many places, it almost sounds as if our salvation, we don't have all of our salvation yet. And that's what he's talking about. He's talking about waiting for the redemption of, of this earthly body, of this earthly body. And so what this glorification is, is the final work of the Holy Spirit and the completion of our salvation. It's the transformation of this natural material body into an immortal body made of the spirit realm of heaven. Let's go and look at... Um, Let's go and look at, uh, um, where do we want to look? Oh, Romans chapter 8. 
It's always a good place to work, even if you don't know where to look. Let's pick up in verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. Now, up until this point, what Romans is basically saying is this is all about what God's grace did. What we could not do because of the weakness of our flesh, God did for us. Starts out around verse 5 or 6 saying that we could not do. We couldn't make ourselves right in God's eyes. We couldn't keep the law because of the weakness of our flesh. The law is righteous and holy. Nothing wrong with the law except that it requires our own flesh and our own effort to keep it. And we might have made it through a day, but we can't keep it all the time forever and never fail once because if you fail once, you failed the whole thing. And so because of the weakness of our flesh, so God did for us in Christ what we could not do for ourselves. He fulfilled the law in us, in Christ who perfectly obeyed the law, and then God, he died and took our disobedience on himself so he could give his obedience to us, so we could be treated as if we perfectly kept the law. So the Spirit of God in us, the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, verse 2 says, has set me free from the law of sin and death because the Spirit has done in me what the law could not do because the law required my flesh to do it, whereas the Spirit of God brought that life into me that the law was intended to give but couldn't. Now having said that, now he's going to go on and talk about something else the Spirit does that we can't do. And so in verse 16, there's a Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we're children, then we're heirs and heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. That's what we've been talking about. Joint heirs. An heir is somebody who's inheriting something. So we are joint heirs with Christ. We are fellow heirs with him. What he inherits, we inherit. But notice there's a condition here. If indeed we suffer with him, that we also may be glorified Together, whoa, 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 it's a suffering business. I don't like suffering business. Glorified sounds good, but this suffering business, I don't like the suffering business. What's this mean? Well, to suffer with him, it can't be something he didn't suffer. Jesus didn't suffer sickness and disease. He didn't have head colds. He didn't have bronchitis. He didn't have cancer. He didn't have any of those things. So the suffering that he had wasn't sickness and disease. So our suffering with him can't be sickness and disease. Because to suffer something with him has to be sharing in whatever it is he suffered. Well, what did he suffer? Well, one of the things he suffered was persecution. He suffered persecution because of who he is. So there's a persecution we'll go through because we identified with him and belonged to him. But he also suffered because it's hard for us to imagine this, he suffered because of the limitation of this flesh. Remember, he was before he came to earth as Jesus, he was the second person of the Godhead. In fact, the Bible says all of this was created by him. It was created for the Father, but it was created by Jesus for the Father, and the Holy Spirit was the agent that physically carried it out. So all things were made by him, and for him, and through him all things consist. So he existed before all of this existed in all the glory of the Father, all of that glory. And Philippians, we've looked at, he set that aside and humbled himself and took on the limitations of flesh, something you and I will never fully understand until we're free of this body. 
But the only thing that ever gets tired is your body. The only thing that ever gets tempted to do the wrong thing is your flesh. The only avenue Satan has at you is through your flesh. And Satan, Jesus, as the second person of the Godhead, never had to deal with any of that until he took on flesh. Now he had to deal with limitations he never had to deal with before. He could only be in one place at one time. He was walking around in a container that got tired, that had to sleep. He spent the first thing that happened when he was filled with the Holy Spirit is the Spirit leads him into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. That's another message for another time. I've been studying that out. That's interesting. To deal with this body, he had never dealt with it before under an attack of the enemy. To be trained in how to handle this thing in the face of temptation by Satan. Because it says when he passed the test, he came back in the power of the Spirit. So he had to learn something in order to flow in the power of the Spirit. He had to have this thing under control so that God could pour his power through him because God can't throw, pour his power through a vessel that's not in control. It's like setting dynamite off in the middle of a room. Dynamite set off in a controlled setting will blast rocks so that they can, they, can, they can drill holes in the ground for oil or they can make an opening or widening the road. But dynamite set off just anywhere will kill and destroy. The power of God just set off will kill and destroy unless it's channeled through a container, channeled through a vessel that's under the control of the Spirit of God. And Jesus had to go through that training. He had to go through that training. And so that's what it means. The other thing I think he suffered with, so he had to suffer with the limitations of this flesh. He had to suffer with people, his own staff. I was meditating on this earlier today. You know, the only people he really, he got frustrated with the, with the Pharisees because they kept people from God. But he also got frustrated with his own disciples. Oh, ye of little faith. That's his disciples he was talking to. The only people he ever said had great faith weren't even Jews. They were the Syrophoenician woman. She was from, from Tyre, which is Syria now. Or, or there was the, the, the Roman officer, the centurion. They're the only two people he ever said they had great faith. His own disciples had poor faith. And he had to be patient with them, long-suffering with them. So that's what he had to suffer with. He had to suffer with the limitations of this life. And so he says, if we all suffer with him. Oh, I've got to move on. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that's to be revealed. Where? In us. So all that we're going to go through, all this frustration, all the, 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 the tiredness, all the issues, the discouragement, all the stuff you've got to deal with and overcome is not worthy to be compared to the glory that's going to be revealed in you. And in me. It's going to be revealed in us. The glory of the Spirit of God, the glory of God's kingdom in us is someday going to be revealed to us. And when? It's when we shed this shell that limits it. And God creates out of us an eternal body that doesn't hold that back, that doesn't limit it. And he's going to go on to say, all of creation is groaning inside of it waiting for the revealing of the sons. Why? This earth, this world, this system is under the weight of a curse of sin. It was released in the garden when Adam and Eve first sinned, and it's just growing and growing and growing and growing. 
And we see it on the front pages of our newspaper every day. We see it on the news, on TV every day. Some other horrible things happening, almost imaginable. And it seems out of control. That's the curse of sin that's on this earth that's just saturating things. Do you ever get tired of all that? I don't want to hear anymore. That's the groaning inside of us. Well, the earth that God created is groaning also. Waiting for something. Waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. Guess who that is? That's us. That's the church. When we come back. And this all changes back to the way. Because to redeem something, that word implies to restore back. God's going to restore back the original order that he had in the beginning. God's going to restore back the original way he made this. And his man to his original glory. And that's going to include you and me. And the body of Christ. That's part of our inheritance. That's part of what the Spirit is in us as a guarantee of. The purchase of that inheritance, of that restoration. See, we think of inheritance in terms of things. Wow, I'm going to have a big house and all that stuff. That's small thinking when you see what God has. That's small thinking when you see what God has. He is unsearchable. It says about Christ, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Think of that. I'm not sure I can. That no matter how far you go, how deep you go, you can't come to the end of the riches that are in Christ Jesus. Wow. 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 So far beyond things. Things. Joy unspeakable and full of glory. Peace that passes understanding. Bathed in love that just fills you up and satisfies you and makes you alive more than you've ever felt before. Wow. All ours in Christ. And the Spirit of God is the deposit of that. Well, we're going to pick up next time here. and We're going to begin to look in, down in verse 18 when he talks about the prayer for us that we might know these riches. So let's pray. Father, we come to you tonight in the name of Christ and we've read some amazing things in your word and we've heard some amazing things about the future that you have for us in Christ. Father, there are people in this room right now that are dealing with very difficult present world situations. There are people that in this room undoubtedly that have very serious family situations. They may have children that are missing that are out there somewhere and they don't know where they are or grandchildren. They may have... Uh, tension and worse than tension outright strife in their home they may have a spouse that's left them or a marriage is about to fall apart they may have issues of their health they may have waiting or been told something by a doctor that is not good news they may be concerned about their finances they may still not have a job they may not know where they're going to live in another six months and father we don't take any of these things lightly but we have to turn to your word for instructions. We have to turn to your word for what we're to do because you care about all those issues of our life. It's not that you sit in heaven and say, well, that's not a big deal to me. Your word says that you're watching over us and that you know what we need before we even ask you. And so we come to you tonight, Father, and ask you to take what we've heard tonight. Take the hope 
that your word gives us about the inheritance that we have. And help us to lift our eyes off of where we are right now and to begin to lift our eyes on you and what you have for us that's already paid for, it's already waiting us, that we have a hope, a tremendous hope, and we have a future, a tremendous future, Father. Breathe hope into our hearts as we prepare to leave this place. Breathe hope by your Spirit into our hearts tonight, that whatever it is we're going through, it is only temporary, and in spite of, in, in the light of eternity, it's short-lived. And it's possible to change. You are the God of all hope, the God of all comfort, and you are the God of glory. And we thank you, Father. By faith, we receive the inheritance that we have and the fullness of what that is, both in this life and in the life that is to come. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.